0: Look it up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's, uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
2: Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yair Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are joined today by Blythe Crawford. Blythe is a PhD candidate at King's College London, is also a research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation. Blythe, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
2: So, Blythe, when we originally uh, asked you to come on the show, it was to talk about memes and chan culture and things, but you've also have just dropped like a whole heap of different reports on the far right that are incredibly fascinating. Let's start off talking about chans and then get into some of those. I guess my first question is, so you've done quite a bit of research on chan culture and the promotion of violence within the chans. What sort of things did you find in that research and how did you find that chans differ from, say, other social networks like Facebook or Twitter?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I worked with researchers Florence Keane and um, Guillermo Suarez at King's College. And we basically did this report on kind of visual culture and chan sites. So chans are kind of unique because on a lot of the main chan sites, you kind of can't post your first post there without uploading an image. So it means that like images are really embedded in chan culture of these online forums So we looked at kind of how images are used to kind of further violent discourse and kind of further discourses surrounding radicalization. And we saw that they were used in kind of a whole host of ways. The the first way being sort of images kind of where they don't have an inherent meaning. They look kind of innocuous and they don't look as if they have anything to do really with radicalization or violence when you first look at them. But the context that they're used in on these websites or on these forums sort of gives them this other kind of layer of violent connotations. So we see memes like, you know, the Yes Chad meme, which is just this kind of blonde Nordic looking guy with the caption Yes under him, sort of very innocuous, but used to kind of reaffirm really racist sentiments and kind of as this sort of voice of anti-humour on chan sites. And we also looked at, you know, images which were explicitly violent. So ones which either were Extremely gory and had really graphic violence in them, uh, or ones which um, maybe were cartoons and depicted um, kind of violent scenarios where sort of attacks are being done onto certain people. And we found that you know these weren't the most prevalent um, images that we found on Chan sites, but there was kind of a steady stream of them. Of the kind of main two hundred images that we saw, I think there were a handful about five really violent images. We also saw different substrains of really popular images where there were like 10 with firearms or others where people were covered in blood. So we saw a lot of images with kind of violent meanings. And often these had sort of violence being targeted towards specific minorities, particularly against kind of Jewish people was probably the most prevalent. So we see these images slowly kind of working their way into violent discourse and sites and sort of getting people used to violence, basically getting them accustomed to seeing violence being done onto minorities. And we also saw kind of images which weren't really memes in the typical sense. We looked at images that were sort of shared between really popular chan sites. And we saw that a lot of these were really textual. So they had like swathes of text on them. Like some were whole books that had just been kind of uploaded as a JPEG. So it could be really easily shared between chan sites. And we saw that these really often had, beyond just the kind of, racist snapshot that you could capture in a visual meme. These had really in-depth kind of reasoning for their racism and were over really the more kind of ideological take on racism. It's really in-depth hatred basically being shared through these textual memes. And these were actually unexpectedly really, really popular. So we essentially just looked at how kind of violent images are intrinsic to the discourse and Chan sites. But I think your question of how Chan sites are different to mainstream social media sites is really interesting because they're essentially like the anti-social media, basically. You have like sites like Facebook where you're sort of centering yourself as a person and it's to share details about yourself. Whereas almost all trans sites, you work on them as you're entirely anonymous. You have sort of no profile picture, no username. Everybody is just anonymous. So they call themselves anons on these trans sites. And instead of being, and I, I think like this anonymity, a lot of people have sort of discussed that it enables people to talk about really extreme topics with kind of an ease, whereas maybe they wouldn't if they felt that that was being directly linked to their personal profile and they were just saying these things publicly. So it potentially allows for more kind of radical discourse to take place. But beyond that, sort of these Chan sites, they are almost deliberately engineered to have kind of a difficult user interface. So whereas Facebook or Twitter, it's really simple. It's really like nice to interact and it's just very user friendly chan sites are pretty clunky you know like they kind of imitate sort of early social media and this really sort of like niche kind of techie desire to return to early social media so they're confusing to use when you first start using them and this is sort of the first barrier to keeping people out and keeping these communities really small and really self-selecting so you just get people there who are really really dedicated to these communities but I mean that has there's so much that you can say about that, you know, that just means that you have people who are really dedicated to these trans sites who are using them. So there's a real, real sense of community on them and a real sense of belonging on them, despite the fact that they're entirely anonymous. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I could probably talk for, you know, the full hour on that.
2: I'm interested in what you say about the way that the UX sort of drives how self-selecting the communities are. Someone was recently talking to me about how they thought that Facebook groups versus some of the conspiracy telegram chats operated in sort of very different ways in terms of how open people were to being sort of red-pilled, where you could see someone in a Facebook group pushing a message, but uh, just the constant stream within a telegram chat. Sometimes the fact that someone was deliberately manipulating you would get lost in in the noise, but you would still be picking up that message.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think it, it's it's really different to that because you know on channel sites you, you don't know who is speaking. So you kind of you have to judge the context of the message from what it says. You know, you can't see just one person continuously posting or you can't tell that until you're very, very familiar with the specific kind of ways that posts are identified. So you're kind of left to judge just on the context of the post itself. So this means that a lot of the time posts are immediately distrusted and are immediately called out as somebody posting on them with intentions, whereas other times conspiracies are sort of trusted and lots of people pile in and back them and you have this sort of hive mind forming where, yeah, conspiracies are left to kind of bloom on these transites themselves. But yeah, I think it is really, really different.
2: There is one particular conspiracy movement that came from the Chans that I'm sure we're going to discuss at length <laughs> later on. I, before we got into that, though, sort of two movements that we've seen come out of Chans would be sort of the alt-right out of, I guess, the pole boards. And mm. then it said that the boogaloo movement sort of comes out of the K boards, which were the, the gun boards. I guess something that's always confused me is, you know, the, these that are just on the same website. Why, why is it that these are considered to have had such sort of separate evolutions, I guess?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. I th- yeah, I think that's sort of some of the tension of Chan sites is that you can't really just say that they are sort of monolithically far right. Because if you look on 4chan, there's like hundreds of boards there. And some of them are just, you know, dedicated to talking about, you know, comic books or music or stuff that has absolutely nothing to, ex- um, to do with extremism. But then you have Paul that is politically incorrect, the board name has kind of organically evolved over the course of 4chan evolving and sort of growing into this really radical space where sort of violent discourse and extremist discourse is allowed and is super common. And the user bases between different boards, um, just from my own sort of experience there, seems to be there is overlap and people do use more than one board a lot of the time. But it's absolutely not kind of duplicate communities so you can have community on one board save what you're talking about sort of techno music right and then you'll have a board where you're talking about my little pony and there won't be a lot of crossover between those two boards and k the weapons board which kind of talks about firearms and survivalism and weaponry has sort of evolved um, parallel to paul with some sort of overlap between the two user bases but not exactly talking about the same stuff. So you have K, which is a much, much smaller board and isn't just, like, none of these boards are just specific to 4chan, but this is where they have their biggest communities. But it's a a much smaller kind of community on K, and they have explicit rules on 4chan that they don't talk about politics, right? And so if you want to talk about something political, even something like gun control, technically you're supposed to take that kind of chat to Paul, and K is just where you talk about sort of how do we use these firearms, what firearm is better than whatever other one. However, obviously that rule is not really implemented and it isn't enforced very strictly. So you do have a lot of kind of, um, you have racial slurs being used really commonly on K and you have, there was like a big sort of opposition to Black Lives Matter when it was kind of reignited in 2020 that um, was pretty prevalent on K as well. Some anti-Semitism as well, although far less prevalent than it is on Paul. So they've kind of evolved to have slightly different community nuances and different in-jokes between the two boards think that that is why they've kind of spawned slightly different movements. But I think that's something that is so interesting talking about the Boogaloo movement coming out of K is that like really it was just the place where the Boogaloo term was used. This is shown by kind of Robert Robert Evans and Jason Wilson in their um, Bellingcat article about it. Um, really, it was just the place that the Boogaloo term was used to mean sort of civil war and kind of this accelerationist idea. But I think the fact that the Boogaloo movement has evolved on these more mainstream platforms to be this kind of amorphous movement where it's difficult to tell whether it's monolithically far right or it has some sort of far left influences is partially because it's come out of K, where the ideology is much more difficult to pin down than it is on these more overtly far right boards like Paul.
3: In terms of the evolution of Chan sites, given that they had relatively innocuous beginnings, aside from anonymity and the affordances of, I guess, an an anonymous use of the internet, what do you think it is about the uh, visual medium in particular uh, that renders it so easily available for the the, uh, manufacture of uh, right-wing and extremist propaganda?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. (laughs) I do think the anonymity has a huge part to do with it. But I think part of it is just how the communities have evolved. They've kind of stemmed from this kind of dual influence from sort of like Japanese otaku culture in sort of the early 19s, or late 90s, early 2000s. So this kind of nerd culture in Japan that then fused with, and that sort of influenced to chan the Japanese um, chan board, sort of fused with this very early sort of edgy humour, internet culture in the US, like the forum, something awful. And these sort of fused to create 4chan. And so it's always had this really kind of fringe attraction to kind of people who maybe feel a little bit outside of mainstream society. And I think that that kind of lends itself to communities where people maybe want to push the boundaries a little bit more than you might on mainstream social media. And so I think that that has something to do with where the extremism has stemmed from. And I mean, on Word's like something awful, there was already extremism and sort of, yeah, like quite... Um, radical stuff happening on there anyway. So they do have roots in somewhat kind of communities that would stem radicalism. In terms of kind of the visual culture, I think a lot of it is to do with just this impulse on chan sites to continuously push the boundaries and to do the most radical thing to kind of shock people. So things like posting kind of extreme gore, which happens pretty regularly on chan sites, I think partially that's there to kind of haze other users and to be like oh if you can't cope with this score then you're pretty weak and like you shouldn't be chatting on these sites." you know sort of keeping the community to be really dedicated and it also kind of keeps new users out you know like if you can't if the if this imagery is too extreme for you then you shouldn't be using this so it's this idea of just keeping the the community pretty radical and i think yeah a lot of it is just to do with shock tactics i think in terms of the visual culture which keeps it pretty consistently pretty consistently extreme, basically.
3: Recently, we've seen a, a photo appear on social media of a local football team and several members uh, doing the OK hand gesture. And uh, this has generated a discussion about, you know, what's going on here? Are they going scuba diving and so on? I guess that's the other kind of factor that I think of when it comes to Chan culture and Ming culture is the possibility of producing various forms of visual representation that allow for some forms of deniability, but which also further a particular political, they have political motivations. And is it possible, do you think, to extricate or unpack these sorts of images in a way that makes sense beyond the, uh, beyond the initiates? So if you take the okay hand se- uh, gesture, You know, that's become a a thing, it's been used, but very often whenever it is and there's some question as to the intent or motivation of the person using it, immediately there's reference made to all the other uses to which this hand gesture can be put. So what do you think it says about how important is humour and deniability in the manufacture of these memes and the ways in which this suits different political purposes?
1: Yeah, I I think it's hugely important. And I think that the example that you're talking about there, so the OK hand symbol, is like such an unfortunate dynamic that we have going now that whenever it's used, it always harks back to far right and promoting sort of 4chan, basically. And it's super unfortunate because that is exactly why that was manufactured. You know, it started as a campaign on 4chan to sort of troll the mainstream and be like, we're going to make this symbol to do with the far right. So whenever somebody uses it, we can kind of claim them as our own and it'll just be like a funny thing that we're promoting. And that's been going on for years and it happens all the time and it's just unfortunate that people almost keep giving into what the users on 4chan initially wanted and there've been multiple other attempts to kind of do the same thing and have the success of the okay sign again you know there are sort of campaigns to have the thumbs up be a far right sign so you can just continue to troll mainstream people whenever they're using it and say it's a far right sign so i, th- I think that that's it really sucks that that's what's Basically, happened and they've been quite successful in that campaign. But I think the idea of deniability is so important because on sort of Chan sites themselves, users can be really openly extreme a lot of the time. But also to somebody commenting on 4chan and sort of saying, look at all this extremism going on here, they have this inherent deni- deniability, like you're saying, where they can just say, oh, A, we're just joking and this is just edgy humor, basically. And B, isn't it sad that you've taken this seriously? Like, you're being a nerd and you're being really stupid for taking this seriously, basically. So they can always kind of flip the dynamic back and make fun of the people who have taken them seriously. I think that's really important. Another thing that happens on trans sites fairly regularly is this idea of kind of meme campaigns um, and taking memes into other contexts and using them to kind of red pill um, or kind of convert like newcomers to the movements So um, an example that has been used, I think, two years in a row now is Operation Pride Fall. So this idea that um, users on 4chan and a few other chans as well um, would take kind of memes which are quite anti-LGBT and sort of a lot of memes which kind of compare sort of the LGBT community to kind of um, pedophiles, basically, and post them on mainstream social media, like visual memes, and sort of use those to slowly kind of... Draw people into escalating and further and further extremism, and these memes like really only work in that context if there is some deniability and they can be seen to not be extreme far right memes. So there has to be this kind of they have to be somewhat innocuous to appeal to people on the mainstream until you bring them into these more extreme communities where um, you can be a lot more overt in your extremism. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's an extremely important dynamic that allows people to have this deniability and to kind of continuously try and get the upper hand on onlookers.
2: You're listening to Yer Passeran Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Blythe Crawford about the far right. Blythe, you've recently co-authored a report through the International Centre for the Study of Radicalization. It's called Far From Gone, The Evolution of Extremism in the First 100 Days of the Biden Administration. And it's uh, fairly in-depth. <laughs> what, what did you find about... Uh, What's been happening in these first 100 days?
1: Yeah, in-depth is a, is a good synonym for very long in that case. It is a long report. Um, yeah, we sort of focused basically on looking uh, – Well, oh, by the way, you should still read the report. It's long, but it's great. Um, uh, we sort of looked at the communities that were really involved in the insurrection um, in the US and kind of what has happened to them since the insurrection and in the first 100 days of Biden's administration – So we focus on key players like the militia movement, um, the Proud Boys, QAnon. These are the three that we really focus in depth. And then we also study kind of the wider movement because the MAGA movement is like a movement of individuals um, at its core. And we look at the narratives that different sort of individuals have used to propel them into the MAGA movement and to the more extreme spheres of it. So I think one of the first things that we cover is the militia movement. And we talk about how it's kind of um, had these different waves and we propose that we should think about it in as a four wave movement. So it started in the 90s, had this kind of uprising in the 90s, basically where it it gathered a lot of support, then had sort of a dip down into sort of the early 2000s where it existed at a kind of lower level and had a lot fewer kind of adherence to it, but then had this second wave during the Obama administration, where it became really re-energized and sort of partially because um, Obama, as the first sort of African-American president, um, it became reignited because it has this kind of very tense relationship with racism, basically. And then again, sort of picked up in during Trump's presidency, where they adopted him as their kind of ideal candidate. And so we look at it now as going into the fourth wave, where Trump, who they have so stringently and really emphatically supported, is now gone, and they are somewhat stranded without the person who essentially became their figurehead for four years. And we suggest that the movement, as it's kind of exemplified by the Oath Keepers, who were one of the main players in the insurrection, kind of feels that the Biden presidency is essentially illegitimate and sort of was, he um, got into presidency because of these voter fraud conspiracies um, that have become so prevalent on the far right and so um, the idea that Biden is now president is to some people in the militia movement a sign that the new world order, this kind of socialist government that will be imposed on the US, is being heralded in right now. And so there is a lot of anxiety with among the militia movement that um, Biden's presidency will be kind of the end of the free world as we know it. So that obviously has huge implications for sort of future violence stemming from that movement. Um, we also talk about the Proud Boys in a lot of depth, largely focusing on their huge rise throughout 2020 and how much they were emboldened by Trump specifically in that year, and how they rose to like astronomical success that they would never seen before on Parler or Parlay, the sort of alternative, um, alternative Twitter basically, which was. Promoted by people by sort of high-ranking Republicans close to Trump, and then contrasting that to what is going on with them just now, which is by comparison a pretty steep decline. Um, they've lost their presence on parlor. They have. Um, they've been designated as a terrorist organization in Canada. They've seen splintering because their le- their um, chairman Tario, was um, working with the FBI for many years. So they've really. They've really fractured basically in comparison to how they were under the Trump administration. And so we look at the potential ramifications of that, warning that although they have a much smaller user base or sort of following than they did before, they're still compared to where they were after comparable shutdowns in media shutdowns in 2018, they're in a much stronger position. And we're seeing factions of the Proud Boys social media presence really turn to open Nazism, open white supremacy. So while, you know, there's always been an undercurrent of these things in the main Proud Boys organization itself, although it's been very, 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 very clear and trying to deny this consistently, um, this is now a move by their secondary social media presence into overtly extreme right narratives, which is really concerning and shows that at least like, a large proportion proportion of the um, Proud Boys movement are at least tolerant of these openly racist narratives. QAnon is another one that we do a huge um, kind of deep dive into and really look at what has happened to QAnon since Trump left office. And there's, there's so much to talk about there because, I mean, Q has stopped posting. So for some time, the movement looked like it might have been stranded, but that is absolutely not what happened. It has just gone essentially from strength to strength on Telegram and alternative social media where it has, we suggest it's balkanized, so there are some sort of groups on Telegram with the media where you have the sort of canonical um, QAnon conspiracy being promoted but you have these other neo-QAnon channels like um, Sydney Powell and Lin Wood who are now sort of they've sort of ingratiated themselves with the movement on the back of um, Stop the Steal and are promoting these kind of QAnon-adjacent narratives. So you have different threats coming from these different um, communities. We've also seen QAnon being preyed upon by the extreme right and sort of a merge in some QAnon communities into open white supremacy and these really, really openly extreme communities. And then finally, we also look at kind of the different narratives that people have adopted and how these have Shifted and um, been kind of strengthened under the Biden administration with the emphasis that during um, Trump's presidency, essentially these narratives were allowed to kind of have free reign basically on social media. And they were a lot of people saw them as being sort of enforced by Trump himself. And although that influence is no longer there in the mainstream um, view for the movement, it's still really continuing sort of Underground, sort of not on Facebook anymore, but on Telegram, and gaining strength there, basically, and becoming more compounded and potentially more extreme. Blythe, I was
2: curious. In the report, you refer to this concept of ideologically motivated violent extremism, which uh, you also note as a term that has recently been employed by the Canadian state security. Australian state security have also recently adopted this term in place of right-wing extremism to sort of a mixed response across the political spectrum. I was wondering, what was it that made you and your co-authors decide to use this term?
1: Yeah, that is a really good question. I think that it really was a decision because we were keen to have this report kind of be useful and be something that is Practical to governments, basically, rather than just a very academic analysis. So, I guess by adopting sort of this term, it has practical usage and it can be something that is being, basically being practically useful. And um, that was really sort of the basis behind it rather than an academic preference for one term or the other. But I think if you get into that wider kind of definitional debate, it, it, it does become potentially problematic at some point using the term far right because a lot of kind of the influences on. The far right are not typically right wing influences. They're sort of bonding with like influences on the left and sort of environmentalism it, um, becoming like a big kind of far right ideology. So, it, at times, and a lot of people on the far right would, of course, um, deny that they are in any way sort of related to conservatism or um, that their views are far right. So, it can be a difficult term to use in, in some contexts. But really, it, it was more of a practical decision rather than. Sort of a deeply held academic preference for one term over the other.
3: Bluff. There's also been a, and um, there's actually a, a federal government inquiry taking place at the moment into extremism and radicalism in Australian society. But one one part of those debates is about the applicability of the term terrorist, and and that's partly because the Canadian government has designated the Proud Boys in Canada a terrorist entity. Just recently, the Canadian uh, franchise has declared that it's uh, dissolving. How do you, I guess, approach groups like the Proud Boys and others in terms of identifying their propensity for ideologically motivated uh, violence or terrorism? And what sorts of considerations do you think others should give to how these terms are applied in these particular contexts?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a really difficult one with the Proud Boys, basically, because Yeah, if you look at the kind of Canadian government's decision, it is a pretty controversial one, because you're seeing the Proud Boys be designated. It's a political designation. So, you know, just being a member of the Proud Boys isn't a terrorist offence, but it means that violence that they carry out under the name of the Proud Boys can be charged with a terrorism offence. And it um, has sort of ramifications and kind of finances, basically, that can be restricted. So it's a very difficult one, because I, I Of course, I I do see sort of the appeal of being able to condemn violence as part of this movement as terrorism. And I I can see that that does make sense. But you're seeing this movement be condemned alongside movements which are essentially very different, like Atomwaffen and the base. It was um, designated alongside in the Canadian context. And these are really different movements in that Atomwaffen and the base very openly organise violence against minorities and are very, very openly anti-Semitic, whereas the Proud Boys have denied these things consistently, they've denied being racist, they've denied being violent, they've denied anti-Semitism, although these things I spoke about before are a constant undercurrent of the movement itself. But yeah, to designate it as a terrorist organization is difficult and it's one that I think the Proud Boys, it has impacted them because it goes against exactly the public image that they've always wanted, which is to be part of the mainstream discourse and sort of a main player in in political discourse, basically in the mainstream. And to call them a terrorist movement severely limits how much they can do that. But on one level, it also reinforces their argument, which is that they are being politically prosecuted and that there is a bias against the far right. So although that really isn't the case, it sort of reinforces their narrative. So it's a very difficult one. And I think it will sort of remain to be seen how it plays out and whether the Canadian faction, as you've said, disbanding is if that is them disbanding entirely or if that is them disbanding formally as Proud Boys and maybe moving into something else. All this kind of remains to be seen. And I, I'm i interested basically to see what the ramifications are because I... Concur that it, it's a controversial decision, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Basically,
2: in writing about militias, you've identified these various waves, and the most recent wave you've noted has this element of a uh, not seeing the current U.S. administration as being legitimate. I guess when I think about the way that uh, the Obama administration was considered, there was also, I guess, besides the racialized element, there was the you know, the the Bertha conspiracy. Mm-hmm in which he was also considered legally not legitimate by these people. How do you think that the this current wave is going to play out differently to the the wave we saw during the Obama years?
1: Ooh, uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want to speculate too much, but I think that there is this kind of difference between the two waves in that during kind of Obama's administration, that was a continuation of the movement still not having a figure that they felt that they identified with, right? So they, they – had maybe backed some political candidates, but they'd always been like these fringe candidates who didn't get spaces in political office and didn't get the positions that they were really running for. And so they could continuously back candidates, but not have to um, sort of invest in them for the length of their political careers. Whereas we have Trump that, um, as we highlight in the report, even during the initial stages of his, of his campaign, although he was quite quickly adopted by the movement because of his kind of um, birtherism and his policies on immigration, uh, on illegal immigration, he was quickly adopted, but there was still some skepticism as to whether he actually had a chance at getting into political office. So when he did um, obviously get the presidency, that was really the first time that the militia movement had a figure that they could actually support and that they felt represented them in the highest political office in the US. And so, as we say in the report, this has sort of big ramifications of how the movement shifted under his presidency and how they became more focused and more targeted against the, the political left rather than government as a political institution itself. So now that they have gone from having this mainstream support or what they've seen as mainstream endorsement to suddenly having that being taken away. There is a contrast there that wasn't there during um, Obama's presidency. So I think that the potential there, because of the sort of starkness of this contrast, there is a potential sort of basis that the movement has been mobilized during Trump or has been um, reinforced during Trump and losing that will be a really big blow to them. So it could potentially mobilize them into further action, as we saw on January 6th. And there's some possibility that that could continue sort of underground and they could continue continue to be mobilized in potentially a more extreme uh, way than they were during Obama. But I think basically the key thing is that they've had the support and now they ha- have, they see the support as being ripped away from them unfairly, essentially. And I think that there is, that that potentially is a really worrying dynamic for them to have going forward.
2: I'm also curious, there's a sort of through line throughout all of the waves of this idea of a new world order that is going to bring in FEMA camps and lock people away in for you know cr- the crime of patriotism they they got through the obama period without the fema camps kicking in they got through covid for the most part without these things appearing which would have been the perfect time to bring them in has the prophecy failed? Is there a lack of institutional memory within these groups? or We've seen the perfect opportunity for these camps to appear. They've failed to do so. Do you think this will have any impact on the movement whatsoever?
1: To be sceptical, I think no, probably. Um, I think that the kind of basis of the question, you know, like it rests on this assumption that the prophecy can fail. And I think that that is debatable, basically. I mean, I, I think for The the movement as a whole to turn around and say we were wrong, this isn't going to happen or this hasn't been happening. I think that that is probably quite unlikely ever to happen, because even though, you know, they haven't seen um, these FEMA camps happening during coronavirus. Covid has been so important to them for reinforcing the fears that they have had of increasing government control. You know, these lockdown restrictions have been seen as Really totalitarian and really tyrannical. So, if anything, although most of the militia movement hasn't se- said that concentration camps are happening because of COVID, it's maybe reinforced the fact that they could happen and they're just about to happen. And I think that that's the key dynamic to a lot of these conspiracies, that like QAnon um, included in this, is the idea that um, we're just on the brink of this thing happening and okay, we've gone over the brink and it's not happened, but we're just on the brink of it happening again. I think that is continual. And of course, not everybody is going to stick with the movement forever. And they can't, not everyone can continue believing forever, but a they will continue to retain a significant number of their user base just relying on the same dynamic and seeing things as continual enforcement that we are really approaching this brink. And right now, this is when it's going to happen. You know, it's a dynamic that, doesn't always really have an expiry date on it, I don't think.
3: Um, You've recently written with Mark a series of articles examining uh, women's participation in Q and especially uh, the political careers of several politicians in the United States who seem to have been able to translate their commitment to or flirtation with Q into political success. And again, one of the questions that's kind of raised in this domain is to what extent do these Figures genuinely believe, to what extent are they simply pragmatists? They recognise that there's a market for these sorts of ideas and embracing it will help further their political careers. To what extent do you think this is a matter of fervent belief as opposed to political pragmatism? And secondly, given that these are almost exclusively, I think, uh, Republican Party figures, what currently do you think is the situation of Q within the Republican Party And, you know, has the Trumpist experiment been so successful that it's colonised the Republican Party to such an extent that Q has become kind of like a a default register that aspiring politicians need to at least acknowledge if they're going to be, you know, win the support of the Republican base?
1: Yeah, I think that's, again, another really good question. I think that in terms of the political belief versus pragmatism of capitalising and trying to gain votes, I think that's something that we didn't want to directly kind of get into that argument too much in the piece itself, because it you can't really tell essentially um, whether somebody is just trying to capitalize or whether there is a really deeply held belief there. But I, I guess there, there was a tension between some candidates, like what one that we talk about is Elizabeth Felton, um, who had, it seems like had some conspiratorial belief during her run for office and had sort of been deeply distrustful of the media but seemed to sort of suppress that during her run. And then after she was ultimately unsuccessful in getting getting on the ballot for the congressional elections, um, that was when her QAnon belief really came out and she felt like she could be more free on social media. So there were some, some cases where candidates tried to suppress their beliefs during the election because they felt it actually, or they seemed to feel like it wouldn't, that it would detract from their political legitimacy. Whereas um, the other category that we looked at was kind of ambivalent support. So people like Angela Stanton King who maybe is one of the candidates who was possibly flirting a bit more with the pragmatism side of things, where they continuously signalled things to the QAnon community, like talking about adrenochrome or paedophilia in uh, the Democratic Party, and pushed this towards the QAnon community and marketed themselves as a candidate that the QAnon community could really trust. But in interviews absolutely explicitly denied that they were part of QAnon. So there potentially was an element of pragmatism. They're just trying to capitalise in the communities. But I think it is important to state that like, although there is this element of pragmatism, and although some people have used it to gain votes, a lot of the candidates there did seem to be people who genuinely really deeply believed in this. And I think something that sort of exemplifies that is how small some of their audiences were. And although they seemed to just be preaching to an audience of maybe a hundred people online, they still very dedicatedly talked about QAnon continuously and really were using their run for office, it seemed, as a platform to talk about Q and to publicize Q. And someone that we talk about in our report who seems to have done that is um Catherine Stone Stone Street Purcell, who run who ran actually not as a Republican, but as a independent party for the Independent Party of Delaware. And she sort of was quite consistent in talking about QAnon and during media appearances on um, a sort of Delaware radio show, talked about it explicitly. And on her YouTube channel, it has a whole video dedicated to QAnon. So some people really seemed to do it out of what they saw as a need to red pill people and need to enlighten people basically for to the conspiracy theory. I think that Looking forward and sort of the idea of the Republican Party being overtaken by QAnon, I would really like to think that that is not what we're going to see. But I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert getting their seats in Congress is something that has really spoken to the QAnon community and has sort of legitimised it to some of to some followers of the conspiracy, and um, particularly at this kind of, we're seeing candidates, QAnon candidates at a local level at the moment applying for sort of uh, roles in local government. And a lot of um, people are currently gearing up for, you know, their 2022 campaigns that they will run for Congress seats as QAnon candidates again. So there is some idea that, okay, QAnon candidates can get elected into Congress. And Marjorie Taylor Green in particular has exemplified that. And I think that Green in particular is kind of such a emblem for the movement at the moment because she was an early adopter of the conspiracy. She believed in it since 2017 when it was still on 4Champ and it so it was really in its infancy. She immediately was attracted to it and continuously pushed it, I think over a year until she started sort of denying her support during her congressional campaign. I would like to think that that Other candidates don't have to appeal to QAnon because I think it would be cynical to say that, you know, all Republicans have this conspiratorial mindset, which absolutely is not the case. There are sort of Republicans who are really upset that the QAnon seems to be um, creeping into the party. And it's obviously seen as a sort of detrimental thing that is polluting politics. But I, I I think that it's a difficult position at the moment for the Republican Party because that is... Yeah, it, it's really been seized upon by QAnon candidates as the party that they absolutely see themselves affiliated with. So it's quite difficult. And I think that like a stat that we talk about in our piece and um, to do with female candidates is that one in seven female Republican candidates who were on the ballot for the primaries were QAnon candidates and had shown some belief for QAnon. So it, it's not a question that comes out of an unfounded you know, speculation. It's way well, it's one that has a basis in that QAnon really does seem to be creeping into the Republican Party. So, I, I guess my answer is I hope that's not the case, but <laughs> who knows, really.
2: And how have the first one hundred days of uh, Lauren Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene's political uh, careers been?
1: Mm, yeah, I, I mean, Lauren Bobert is one who she really did explicitly try and deny the fact that she was part of QAnon, and uh, although she kind of made these appearances on QAnon shows has had less of impact on the movement than Marjorie Taylor Greene has because Marjorie Taylor Greene has so consistently adopted conspiracy theories and was one of the most major voices in pushing Stop the Steal, the voter fraud conspiracy theory. I think just their presence, though, both of them is really influential and shows, and I I think that we really cannot ignore the fact that they are part of this um, potentially extremist movement and now they are in Congress, so we cannot overstate the impact that that will potentially have. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene in particular has had a big, big, big impact um, because she has really not given up and has consistently backed conspiracies during her first 100 days. She went in there and right off the bat, attempted to file these um, articles of impeachment against Biden. So clearly making her opposition clear and wearing these face masks, you know, with censored on them and Trump won. And she has, as we highlight in our report, continued to signal directly to the QAnon community as well by posting sort of social media videos, highlighting key QAnon phrases like drain the swamp um, and entering the storm and stuff like that. So she is continuing to reinforce the movement and speak to the movement as a, one of the main figureheads of it. And essentially all, every social p- media post that she makes is something else that really reinforces the QAnon movement basically. So she, she's really only reinforcing them at, at this point.
3: Well, I think in terms of explaining the particular attractions that Q may have for women. One factor is the desire to protect uh, women and especially children from abuse, and that's been demonstrated through or utilised through the adoption of hashtags like save the children and so on. I mean, I find this quite interesting but also somewhat sinister. How do you think that this kind of uh, adoption of this rhetoric aids or more likely perhaps uh, impedes? attempts to address child sexual abuse and men's abuse of women in uh, US society and and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the really difficult things to grapple with with the QAnon conspiracy is that it so often does come from, you know, a genuine desire to protect people and to make the world a better place. So it, on some level it's one of the easier conspiracies to understand why people get so impassioned about it because they truly do believe that they are saving children, basically. But I mean, as you say, I mean, um, Save the Children, the actual charity issued a statement that they really wanted to distance themselves from the hashtag that the QAnon community adopted. And I believe other charities have made statements saying that the number of calls they get related to QAnon communities and QAnon campaigns impedes their ability to effectively um, carry out their work actively helping children who really are um targets of this abuse and yeah i i I think that definitely obviously does have impact on actually helping children and i think that that's it's just one of the difficult things about it is to see it's almost like an i think one of the things that we talk about in our report basically is the fact that sort of sexual assault and sexual abuse which unfortunately although it isn't just a women's issue women are really overrepresented in statistics of being targeted by these kind of abusers and of these crimes one of the issues is that unfortunately these crimes are really it's a minority of the ones that are act- actually the abuser is sentenced and is convicted and so there is this kind of continual frustration that these crimes are not being dealt with properly and that women are not being helped properly, basically, um, who have been victims of these crimes. So there's almost this impulse that attracts people to the QAnon community, potentially because it's seen as a way that people can take the justice of these crimes into their own hands and they can be part of a community that really is doing something, you know, where they might feel that they've been failed by um, legal systems in this area. So I think that all around the fact that this narrative has potentially particular resonance with women, it makes sense when you when you consider how sort of sexual assault is being dealt with in regards to women, basically. And it's just so, so unfortunate that it is channeled in a way which impedes justice being done rather than a way which actually enforces justice um, happening for these kinds of crimes.
2: In the Far From Gone report, you identify transphobia as a, a major sort of new front in, I guess, for lack of a better term, the culture war, although it's so much more than that. How do you see transphobia uh, manifesting as we move on from these first 100 days across these uh, ideologically motivated extremist groups?
1: Yeah, I, I think something that we actually are quite careful not to do in the report is to say that this is like a new front, because I think transphobia has been around in the far right for a long, long time. So it's not necessarily a new thing that is happening. It's just... It's a narrative that isn't highlighted an awful lot, um, despite the fact that it is so, so prevalent in far right spaces. But yeah, it potentially is becoming slightly more prevalent now, possibly because homophobia is potentially dropping down in the sort of public facing aspect of some of these groups. But something that we talk about in the report is the idea that transphobia in the first 100 days of the Biden administration is often being targeted against um, Dr. Rachel Levine, um, who was appointed by Biden, who is the sort of first openly trans person to serve in sort of US political office. So she being like a publicly facing um, figure is becoming quite a open target of transphobia in the far right and of course, in some more mainstream political um, circles. And we show that this is, such the first thing is that it's such an effective narrative, basically, for the far right to jump upon because, um, unfortunately, transphobia is still so prevalent in the mainstream. Basically, so in the same way that misogyny is um, often sometimes the starting point for somebody to get involved with the far right, and they get involved in the far right sort of because they um, view sort of they have this sort of male supremacist mindset. Transphobia can also be sort of the starting point for somebody to get gradually ingratiated towards the further far right mindset and it can be kind of the tipping point for them to draw them into the movement. And it's also something that, because it is so mainstream, potentially softens the movement um, to people from the outside. So that's sort of the first thing that we um, sort of talk about in the report. We also talk about how it is a really effective narrative for the far right because a lot of the time they have um, really, really strict gender roles. So we talk about the Proud Boys in particular, having this Western male chauvinism and this idea that sort of men Do men do the violence, women do the cooking, basically, you know, men be the um, breadwinners and women sort of stay at home. We talk about how transphobia is sort of seen to violate or trans people in general are seen to violate these strict categories and seem to be kind of a corrupting or a byproduct of the corrupting um, influence of modernity on traditional gender roles. So it is something that also kind of reinforces other aspects of far right belief. But it's something that we really, really wanted to highlight and make part of our, you know, executive summaries and one of our main findings because unfortunately for one reason or another it just isn't highlighted enough, despite the fact that I think there was a comment on Twitter that I think Q Origins Project said that, you know, you can't spend four and a half seconds in a far right space online without encountering transphobia. So I think it's a narrative that needs to be given a lot more attention on how it is really coming to prominence in far right spaces because yeah, like it's one that has a lot of potential to creep um, into the mainstream and to push far right back into the mainstream again.
3: Along with uh, transphobia, uh, recently in Australia and United States, uh, there's also been a, a development whereby something called critical race theory has come under fire and has uh, been portrayed as being also not only a sign of a certain form of uh, Western decadence and deracination and so on, but a key tool used by leftists to subvert racialized order. In that sense, I guess it has some parallel to the ways in which uh, people who are trans are understood to be embarked upon a project of uh, gendered subversion. Is, is critical race theory something that you've identified in your research as being of a, a particular concern to the far right, and do you think that given recent outpourings of concern over the subject, that it will uh, join the ranks of all the other key concerns of the far right in the United States and in Kew.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's not something that we specifically highlight in the report itself, but it is definitely one of these narratives that has become particularly part of kind of the slightly more public-facing aspect of the far right um, and, you know, the MAGA movement itself um, as being you know, the, the example of the left creeping into um, mainstream institutions and controlling these institutions. So um, ideas of cultural Marxism have really um, infused with what is seen as the creeping influence of race theory. I think that that sort of narrative really impacts the impulse on sort of all extremist groups, basically to see themselves as being unfairly politically persecuted and um, being Um, silenced and censored and it's seen as sort of the left doing that at a very early stage you know in some cases in primary school Um, and one of the things that is prevalent in sort of far-right groups is this sort of overlap with the sovereign citizen movement and sort of taking your kids out of school homeschooling them um, giving them their own education because you can't trust the institutions and the institutions are so irreparably corrupt and so this yeah this critical race theory narrative is just sort of the newest in a long string of narratives that have really enforced that that mindset basically
2: well we'll have to leave it there thanks so much for joining us if people want to read more of your stuff you're on twitter at blythe underscore crawford thanks for joining us
1: great thank you so much it was great to be here
2: well andy that's all we've got time for global indifada is up next see you next week
3: see you later
4: It's time to speak up, speak out, and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want a poem, a speech, or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on Stolen unceded land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, a 3CR supporter.
2: Smartphone Stories is a fun, free workshop for anyone in the community who would like to make a film using just their smartphone. We're coming to the city of Yarra at the Bagunga Nanyin North Fitzroy Library on Monday the 3rd and Monday the 10th of May. You can register for a place at www.smartphonestories.com Proudly supported by Vic Health.
4: A 3CR supporter.